Welcome to episode 10 of the podcast of Nonsensical Gamers. My name is Matt, and joining me on today's cast is my co-host, Tiffany B. Hey! Dan will be joining us later in the episode, but before we get started, just a reminder that you can reach out to us on Facebook and Twitter by searching for the League of Nonsensical Gamers, or feel free to shoot us an email at podcast at nonsensicalgamers.com. We'd love to hear from you. You can also reach out to us on our BGG Guild, number 2077, or search for the League of Nonsensical Gamers. And there you can chat with us about the show, about topics that you'd like to see or hear, or anything else you're interested in. So for today's show, we're going to try out a new segment. We're going to look at something called the filler feature, where we take a look at some of the little games that we've been playing and getting to the table lately. And then we're going to sit down with Chris Kirkman from Dice Hateney Games and see what he's been up to. We have a nice little interview planned for that. But before any of that, let's go ahead and talk about what we've been playing. So, Tiff, what have you been getting to the table lately? Didn't get a whole lot to the table this week, but last week I went to the 24-hour Gamers for Cures marathon, and I played games for 24 hours, which was pretty awesome, and I got to play Pandemic the Cure. Ah, yeah. So that's the new dice game? Yeah, it's it's basically the dice version of pan- Pandemic. It feels exactly the way Pandemic feels. Uh, it's just faster, uh, a little bit faster to set up, a little bit faster to play. Each roll that you have has a set of custom dice that you roll, and that kind of determines what you can do on your turn. It's from a higher level of abstraction, so you have these little round tiles. They look like coasters that represent continents instead of having the, the whole entire map of the world in front of you. Okay. So, so the movement is a little bit more simplified, I think, and it's pretty great. I like it a lot. So, how fast does it go if it's that much quicker? It was probably a half-hour game Yeah. that we played. Yeah, pretty quick. But it still uses the same, like, spread of disease kind of thing that you're trying to stop? Like, it's basically the same goal of Pandemic? Yeah, you have the same goal. Have um, So, you roll dice that are the infection dice, and they go in these different locations. Once you get more than three, they outbreak, just like in Pandemic with the cubes. So you're trying to go around and cure them, and you get to put them in the treatment center, and then you can eventually cure the disease. So it, it feels very much the same as the base game, like I said, just a little bit quicker. And I don't know if it totally cures the, the alpha player thing like I thought it would. I kind of thought, well, no one's going to reach over and grab my dice and, and use them for me the way they might grab my pawn. Yeah, but they can still but, tell you what to do with those dice, I guess. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we, we kind of had a player that was offering suggestions, and, and there's nothing wrong <laughs> with that. But <laughs> Well, it's a co-op. I mean, that's, it's a co-op. You want, you want to be able to do that. So. Yeah. Do you think it replaces the original for you? Because I know Dan, like Dan's not a big fan of Pandemic, but this might be a version that I might be able to get him to play. I don't know. Well, he played it with me, okay. So, and I don't think he hated it. Yeah. So as so someone who go. doesn't own Pandemic, do you think this would be worth it? Because I don't actually own it. Uh, ben has it, but I don't. I definitely think you should check this out. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah, because I, I think you would. I think this will get to the table more often. It's not that Pandemic is a super long game or anything. It's just that this is just so much quicker. And it's got this little round thing that you keep. Gosh, I need to stop calling everything a thing. (laughs) 
It's got a circular tracker in the middle that kind of represents the treatment center and it tracks the outbreaks and the different stuff. So it kind of looks neat on the table. It makes me want to play it. And who doesn't love Chuck and Dice? So Yeah, I mean, I'm all for Dice game. That's cool. Highly recommended that one. Okay. Well, one that I've gotten to the table is actually one that we talked about a few episodes ago, which was my number one game from SN 2014. Um, I got a hold of Chimera and got that to the table. And? And I love it. verdict? I think it's excellent. I think that um, now I haven't played everything on my top five list that we did, so I guess I can't say that for sure it's going to stay my number one, but in terms of the games that I have played, I am I'm really happy with it, and... Overall, just, you know, not even worried about the list, but just from an objective, like, trick-taking standpoint. I know you're not a big fan of trick-taking games, but this one's a lot of fun. Um, well, what does it play like? I, I know nothing about it. Um, so, they most compare it to Teach You. I haven't played Teach You yet, um, but that's the, the main corollary that they're making. Um, it's for only three players. It's got a really kind of classic trick-taking game feel. Um, you're bidding each round to be um, the lead player, and the lead player is actually the Chimera, and the other two players, because this is a three-player-only game, are the Chimera Hunters. And basically, the two players are trying to... One of them is trying to go out of their cards before the Chimera goes out of his or her cards first. Um, And basically, depending on who goes out first and the types of um, hands that you play, so the types of... Um, sets like three of a kind, pairs, things like that. Um, you'll score different points for that. Um, so it's pretty easy to pick up. I think the most challenging thing is just keeping track of how you can play because basically when you go to lead a hand, the other players have to play that same hand. But it's super tricky because you can play basically anything like your traditional straights like five in a row or triplets or pairs, but then you can also play like a sequence of pairs, so like pairs of five, six, and seven, or three triplets with an extra card attached, and all kinds of weird crap like that. It's kind of strange. Sounds crazy. Yeah, but um, I've really been enjoying the, the, the plays, although I do have to say that the three-player only has already kind of bit me at game group because, you know, I bring it with me, and we've ended up having four, or we've ended up having like two while a couple other people play a different game. Um, so... It's, I'm already feeling the challenge of trying to get a three-player-only game to the table, which is kind of a bummer, because I really do like it. Yeah, everyone I know that has played it has had good things to say about it. It might be one that I check out. I mean, I'll definitely, if you're, I mean, we'll see, I'll see it at Unpub or one of the other conventions. Um, I'll definitely bring it along if you want to try it, because I know you're not a big trick-taker, but I think it's fun, and it's got some interesting strategy. Yeah, I think it's pretty cool, and you know, we, we played Chimera and Diamonds back-to-back because those are, like, the two big trick-takers on the market right now. And I think I like this one better strategically, although Diamonds is a lot easier to get to the table with, with uh, more people, and it's a lot more approachable. So, you know, pick and choose. Yeah, it doesn't sound terrible. What I really need is a trick-taking tutor. I need someone to teach me how to play trick-taking games. I'm embarrassed to admit that I'm from Ohio and just have no idea. I feel so far behind, so... If you're listening out there, <laughs> well, were you? Have you ever I mean, played Hearts? Are you like a Hearts player or a Spades player? I no, I never played those games okay. ever. So see, that's where we need I to played... start with you because those, like, you play those, 
and you get you get decent at those. Those are like basic 52 card decks, no special powers or anything weird like that. That's where you need to start. That's where whoever your tutor is, where you find them, just have them teach you hearts or something like that. Yeah, I'll get around to it eventually. Yeah, well, it's kind of hard to when you've got all kinds of excellent games. Like, what else have you been playing? Oh, I wasn't going to talk about an excellent game just not, like right now. <laughs> all right, well then, it might be easy to play Trick Takers then. <laughs> <laughs> no, okay, so one of the other games I was excited to try at the marathon, they had demos going of Tragedy Looper, which is uh, a game from Z-Man Games that came out at Gen Con. The designer is Baka Fire Fire Baka Fire. It's one name, like Share. Yeah. So <laughs> that's kind of cool. And it is a deduction game uh, for two to four players. It's kind of an anime theme. There's you're trying to there's time travel involved. So you're on this loop of time. You're trying to figure out what's going on. An event happens, like a murder or a suicide, and then you start the loop over again. You're trying to go through and prevent the, that from happening. There are regular players that are just trying to prevent that from happening. There's also a mastermind player that is trying to make that happen. So. Uh, kind of like an overlord player. Yeah. So I got a chance to play it. I was excited about it because pretty much all those things I just described are things that I enjoy. So Yeah, I do too. I've got this. I'm staring at it right now on my shelf. So I'm and I haven't gotten to play it yet, so I'm interested to hear how this went. I know it didn't go well, but I want to know why. Well, okay. First of all, I'll say this. I felt like the p- components were really glossy. Now, this might have been a like lack of sleep issue that my eyes weren't working correctly but i felt like everything was really glossy and i couldn't read anything (laughs) so that's that's problem number one and you have to be able to read what's on the cards because there are like special abilities and things that you activate by putting goodwill or putting paranoia by putting paranoia on a card so those things will activate and that text is on the card so I, I had a little bit of trouble with that. Um, well, I opened up my box, and I wasn't blinded by the cards. So maybe that was just my issue. It might have just been where you're sitting, but that's no, that's fair. There is a lot of text here, so I can understand if you're not right up on the cards and you never played before that it would probably be hard. And the text is pretty tiny on them, too. Yeah, I'm not going to yeah. lie. The gameplay is pretty simple. The The mastermind plays some cards down on top of the different characters, and then you, not knowing what they have played, play cards down on the characters. And they move the characters, they add goodwill and paranoia, and which can activate some different abilities that they do. Um, there are different combinations where if, if the mastermind has played one type of movement and you play another type of movement, like your character might go diagonal instead of to the side. So you got to kind of anticipate what that mastermind is trying to do. And communicate with the other players and kind of tip your hat as to what you're going to do, but without telling the mastermind too much. It's kind of tricky that way. So that was interesting. The thing that I didn't like about it, just to start off, is there's such little information. Like that first time around, that first loop, you have no idea. You don't know what's going to happen. Like, I mean, I imagine that's thematic. Like if you were just dropped into a point in time and had to figure out what was going on. That's exactly what it would feel like. I just don't know that I like that feeling. <laughs> so it's definitely um, different. I felt, yeah. yeah, I felt like my first decisions didn't really matter because I had no way of, it's kind of like when you first start playing a game of resistance and you kind of just have to do things Yeah, yeah. to get more information. Yeah. That's never a good feeling. That's, I mean, that's one of the downfalls of those kinds of games. Um, where you're just trying to 
I'm not saying make mistakes, but you're just trying to, like you said, do things just to figure, like isolate certain pieces of information. Like Mr. Jack's like that, and some of like uh, Letters from Whitechapel is kind of like that too. See, and I like those games. I don't know what it is about. Maybe, like I said, it could. It was only one play, and it could be lack of sleep. It really could be. Yeah. So I, I mean. I just don't know if this would ever make it to the table in my group because of that mastermind player. Like someone would always have to be that mastermind player. And I can't think of anyone other than me that would want to do that. Well, that's actually what I'm concerned about is like I picked up this game and most of the time and as is common, like the games that I pick up, I'm usually the ones to teach them. I'm usually the one to teach them. Um, But this game, it seems like the mastermind the one, there's a lot of work that goes into it in terms of knowing the scenario, and two, like once it seems like there can only really be one mastermind for a given scenario. Because if I like, if I flip to the other side of the table and try to play the player, I'm gonna know what's happening. Right. So yeah, it, that's true. That's what concerned me. Once you become the mastermind for a certain scenario, you have to probably stay the mastermind for that scenario yeah. for life. Which in a game where I'm teaching is probably gonna end up me meaning that I'm going to be the mastermind every time. I'm never going to get to play the player. I'd like to see it from that perspective. I think, actually, that I would probably prefer being the mastermind and having the information. Because you have all the information. Yeah. (laughs) I'm too much of a control freak to have such little information. So... I don't know. It's it's definitely an interesting game. What concerns the other thing that concerns me about it is I've heard that it's really hard to go from just the rule book to learn it. I've been taught it, but I don't know if I could pick this up right away again. Well, I can say that I so. picked the game up kind of cold. I started reading the rule book and I immediately put it down and I haven't touched it since because it was difficult to understand. Like I I read through it and it was just like reading words with no meaning kind of thing and I probably should set up like a a play scenario and kind of play around against myself, but um I just it's so much effort to try to get this game to the table. And that's kind of a bummer. Yeah. Well, it's a shame because I really, I like, I like the idea of an anime themed game. I, there aren't too many out there and it's kind of cool. Yeah, the but, game looks cool. And, and time travel. I love yeah, time it's travel. It's like uh, so, that new Tom Cruise movie. It's like Edge of Tomorrow. Yeah. With less alien robots. <laughs> but. I feel kind of bad that I I bashed your game before you got to play it. It's okay. No, I think that this is valuable information, and I do want to still play it for sure, and maybe I can shed some light on a future cast about like how it is from the other side. This might actually inspire me to get it to the table, to be honest, because like, every time I look at my shelf, I'm like, well, it's sitting there, and I haven't really learned how to play it, so I just ignore it, but maybe now I should like break it out and, and play it. Give it a try. Let me know what you think. I'm, I'm curious the, to see if how much of it was like just straight up sleep deprivation or and me just wanting to be in the next game that I was supposed to play. Yeah. <laughs> it might have been that. So Well, yeah, 24 hours will do that to you of nonstop gaming. Yeah. So It's a long time to game, and I didn't stop. Like, I didn't take very many breaks. I ate occasionally, but it was pretty much nonstop gaming. Yeah. Sandwich in one hand, Rhino Hero cards in the other. More or less. Yeah. But we've, I mean, we've got some pretty heavy games to the table, too, so that was nice. Yeah, well. What else have you been playing? Oh, sorry. No, on that same note, um, we have gotten a game, a pretty heavy game to the table, which I'm very excited about. Um, I was fortunate enough to win a Twitter contest uh, with Asmodee USA for a copy of Hyperborea. 
and they the game showed up and I looked at it and this is a game that was on my radar but if you guys listened to a pre- the previous cast you know that this wasn't on my top five for Essen um, even though this was an Essen release I, I wasn't sure about this game I didn't know that much about it it looked cool but it wasn't really floating my boat just because there's so many Civ builders out there and this is billed as another Civ builder um, but I got it and I knew like okay I got this game one, like, this game came for me for free, and I appreciate Asmodee USA for doing um, doing what they did, so I wanted to do it justice by obviously playing it. I'm excited for it, um, but I'm hoping to do a review of it, too. So I broke it out, read the rulebook um, the day I got it, ran through, like, a little um, setup and playthrough to figure it out, watch some videos, and then we got to the table the next day, and this game is pretty good. Yeah, it looks good. I I saw it. They had some copies of it at Gen Con, actually. Yeah. And the whole, you're drawing things from a bag, which immediately it, it interests me. Yeah. That's like my favorite mechanism ever. Tell me more about the bag. <laughs> well, not only are you drawing things from a bag, but you, this is, this is bag building. This is like, this is a mini deck building component to it. And it's kind of like, maybe say like in village or something where you're putting your people into that bag to be drawn for the church. Um, or something like that, or like in Steam Park where you're loading in um, certain amusement park riders, um, people to come I'm run. listening. So it's like that, except it's personal. So you have a sieve, basically you have a group of people who have settled outside of this region of Hyperborea. Um, you're trying to explore and settle, control certain hex tiles. It's a, it's a modular hex tile map. Um, and the way you take your actions... You draw cubes of different colors out of a bag, and basically each color corresponds to a different type of action, and you might need combinations of cubes to take certain actions. So, like, green cubes are primarily exploration, and blue cubes are, like, your science and tech upgrades, and red cubes are attacking. Um, So through each turn, you draw a certain number of cubes out of your bag, and then you use those cubes to take actions. And by taking those actions and exploring... You get upgrades, which you can add more cubes to your bag, and it's very user-controlled. Nothing random is going into your bag. You are in very heavy control of what goes into your bag. So um, it's really like that that deck-building mechanic where you're in control the whole time and you know what's going in. And it's super interesting because it works really well for a sieve-building game. Like You get the feel of exploration. Um, you get the feel of upgrading your, your civilization through um, technology. I think the weakest point in the game is probably combat, only because there's no dice rolling system, there's no like really combat upgrades, it's basically if you take the combat action, you can kill somebody who's next to you. Oh. Yeah, there's no like random or chance in killing, it's basically I have an attack point that lets me kill one thing. So in terms of combat, other Civ games are a little bit stronger and a little more fleshed out in, in the combat system, but it's still there, it's still worth victory points. It's just such an interesting game, and we played it pretty quickly, even though we got hung up on the rulebook. One thing I do have to say is that the rulebook is not the best, and that's a bummer, but there's an excellent FAQ on the um, on the internet put out by the designers, filled in all the gaps, so once I pulled that up, I had a, I had a full rulebook. Um, it's, I just, I like it a lot. I can't wait to play it, um, play it some more. I want to try it two-player. It goes all the way up to six which is kind of like, you know, Eclipse and Clash of Cultures and things like that. Play those higher player counts, so I'd be interested to see. I don't like deck building, 
So that's kind of the part that I'm hung up on. Yeah, why that's I why I'm, I'm wary of describing it like that because it's really, it's not deck building, but it kind of is. Like, it's not deck building in the sense that the, the cubes that you draw out are very multi-purpose and you can do a lot of things with them. And um, But it is deck building in the sense that when you throw all your cubes back in there, you don't know what you're drawing out. You don't know what you're getting for your hand that round. So... Well, that doesn't sound as bad. No, I think that it's it works pretty well, and I it's it feels very fresh and very new, um, and I'm really excited to play it because it it just it's a good game. I'm so glad that I have it, and you it is a hundred dollars retail. You can get it for I think below seventy online. Uh, yep. Which is still a little bit high, um, but the the component quality is nice. The game is very well put together. It comes in a very nice like thick sturdy box all the components are really nice punch board um, you've got some really nice plastic miniatures with different sculpts so i can see why it's a a more expensive game a hundred dollars is a lot though so you know if i were going to get this game i would go out and buy it at the secondary market even though i know that doesn't support game stores and companies as much but you know it's it's pricey and i'm a gamer yeah. on a budget so. real quick question sure you said you played it quickly yeah what does that mean? <laughs> like, uh, True. keep yeah, in mind it was a learning right. game. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the playing time online says it's 90 minutes. Yeah, so it, it's billed as 25 minutes a person um, on the box. And I think that without our, like, it was a learning game. So I think if you take out all the learning and the digging through the rule book, I think it hits that mark pretty well. We played three player. I think it hits about 75 minutes. Um and it was a close game, too, so it wasn't, you know, it, all the point spread was pretty close. Um, and once we got going, it turns out that it's a much simpler game than we thought it was. Once we knew what we were doing, turns go quick. Even when you have a lot to do, you kind of, you've got time to plan in between turns, and you know, okay, I'm doing this, this, and this. Because you draw your cubes at the end of your turn, so you can plan ahead of time, just like you would in a card in a deck builder. So not too much downtime in between? No, I think the biggest downtime from us came to from buying techs. So really, what tech did you want to buy? Um, which there's so many different techs to buy. We didn't, see, we didn't see a quarter of them, you know, when we played our game. Because each player gets, we had, I think, like four or five apiece. And there's so many in those decks to buy. And then, I guess, just if you have a lot of people out, basically, the more units you have on the board the more you can do in terms of like actions, extra actions that you get from being on the board. So if you have a lot of people out there, you have a lot more options to think about. But if you play, if you're a proficient player of, of these games, you should be doing those things in your downtime between turns anyway. So it shouldn't take long. I feel like I just talked for like an hour, but this is my most, I'm super, ex I'm most excited about this game out of any of the games that I have right now. No, that, that makes sense, and I, I really wanted to hear about it anyway, because it's been kind of, like, on the periphery of my radar. <laughs> like, this looks interesting, but it's too expensive for me to want, so I'm just going to keep it out there. Yeah, well, it's another one I'll be bringing, or I'll, I'll bring by if you want when you're here in Baltimore with us, so I can bring it by if you want to want to play some Hyperborea. I plan on trying to get in as many plays as I can with, a, with different players to see where it sits best, but I've heard, I watched some reviews, and, you know, Joel Eddy says it plays good with two, so I believe him. Yeah, well, he's usually my go-to guy for opinions. Yeah. I trust that guy, so <laughs> uh, <laughs> it'll. I I can't wait to hear how it plays with less players. Anything else you've All been right. playing, Diff? 
Well, I got a cop to finally buying legendary encounters. Ah, uh, yes. Right. I still need to pull the trigger on this. Um, do it, because if you love Alien, you're probably going to love this. I have been known to complain about the Marvel Legendary game. I, I've pl- I have friends that really love it, and I play it with them, and I have not loved it. But I really think that that is an issue of theme, that I am not into Marvel, and that's why I could not get into the game. Like I, I always just felt like, oh, this is tedious, the setup takes forever, this is way more effort than what it's worth. And now I see that I was kind of a little bit wrong on that. <laughs> like, the setup still takes a long time. It took me forever just to sort out the box because the cards come in no kind of order. Ew. You have to sort them out into all the different decks. Yeah, it takes forever. So it probably took me an hour to do that. I'm Jeez. not joking. <laughs> so, um, But you get to look at all the cool art. Yeah, and the art is interesting, too. I... I haven't explained the game, but inst- <laughs> instead of doing that, I'm going to talk about the art. They okay. Instead of doing like screen captures of the movies, they did art of scenes of the movies. So it's, it's drawn. And I don't know if I like that or not. I haven't decided. Yeah, I looked at it. I, I don't know. I don't think I like the player board that no. much. Well, it's but a map. Some of the card art looked good. The, I really actually like the idea that this came with a play mat instead of, yeah. of a cardboard board. So I like, I appreciate that it's a mat. I don't know if I would have designed it exactly that way, but I mean, it, it serves its purpose and it's fine. Um, the art on the cards, it's not bad. I, the thing I noticed, and maybe I should have done more research, I probably would have known this, is it seems like some of the decks were done by different artists. Like you can tell a definite different style on some of the decks oh, that interesting. and i just haven't decided if that's a good thing or a bad thing for me it's yeah it's inconsistent <laughs> so well, i guess the idea is though so i've looked into this because this is one of, this will probably be one of my next purchases if i do buy a new game um like the idea is that you can play through the movies though so they really shouldn't be mixing that much is that right so it plays pretty much like um, Marvel Legendary, where you have the deck of monsters and objectives that are shuffled together, and the monsters and objectives get harder as you go through that deck. You flip them out into this area called the complex. Um, when they get flipped out, this is where it's a little bit different, so they come out face down. So you don't see what kind of monster is under there or if there's an event that's under there that's going to happen until you scan it, which is one of your actions that you can take on your turn. Um okay. So, it really is like the most thematic thing. I like I love that mechanic alone makes me want to buy the game because I think it's awesome to fit with the alien theme. Right, and and you can't attack those monsters until they're scanned, and they'll get eventually they'll go through the complex and they move further and further, um, and then they'll get into the combat zone. Once they get into the combat zone, if they're not flipped over, they will flip over, and then they strike you each turn. So you're drawing strikes out of the strike deck, which are bad and take off of your life total. Um, it feels a lot like the movies. It's it's very thematic for a deck builder. I I'm infinitely impressed by it. I yeah. I took a big chance on buying a deck building game because I typically don't like them, but I love Alien so much that I was just like, I've got to try this. And I mean, you get a lot in the box, and it's got the playmat, and that kind of just pushed me towards it a little bit more, and I'm glad I bought it, because I've, I've played it solo, and it's fun solo. 
Yeah, and this is one that if I do pick up, we're gonna give we're gonna give the old Skype game a try. Yes, for sure. We'll figure it out. <laughs> no, I I'm excited for this one. I mean, I'm a I'm a big Alien fan. I like all the movies. I just think it's such a great like villain like creature, and it's good sci-fi. And yeah, I yeah, love the it. game. I love that they included all of the movies in it. You can play any of the four movies. Yeah. There's no Prometheus yet. Uh, I'm not that upset about that one, though. If you don't like Prometheus, watch it again. Well, I'm just mad that she, when she's being about to run over by, about to be run over by a giant rolling circle, that she doesn't just cut to the left or the right. Yeah, that's stupid. To avoid getting squashed. I'll admit that. That is stupid. But I, I've come to enjoy that movie after watching it a couple of times. Yeah. I need to take a better look at it, but I'm sure that'll be an expansion. Yeah, probably. Along with the Terminator and the Predator that they're coming out with for this series. Yeah, that should be interesting. I'm I'm not like as big into Predator as I am Alien, so I doubt I'll be trying to mix all that stuff in, but if it's if it's oh, anything no. like Alien this, versus Predator. Yeah, I know. That's like the one that you would do, but I'd be more interested in like Alien versus Terminator cuz those were the movies that I liked back in the day. I just never got into Predator. But either way, this game looks cool, and I'm glad to see like something other than Marvel because, you know, I played Legendary, and I have no interest in the DC deck builder. But like, comics are cool, but you know, Alien, it's Alien. Yeah. Come on. Yeah. I highly cool. recommend Legendary Encounters. It's the Alien deck builder. Well, have you been getting anything else to the table, or or do you think that that's probably pretty good for what we've been playing? That's pretty good, I think. All right. Well, we'll go ahead and end it there, and we will transition um, after a break. We'll be doing our filler feature, and Dan will be joining us for a little bit for that. And then we will round out the episode with our interview with Chris Kirkman from Dice Hate Me Games. So stay tuned for after the break for those things. All right, everyone, so we're going to go ahead and try something new today. We want to go ahead and try out a segment we're going to call the filler feature, um, where we're going to take some time basically to talk about some of the little games that we've been playing that kind of fill in the, the gaps between the larger games. And this isn't a full review. It's just uh, we're picking a game that we like um, that is teachable and playable in under an hour, roughly. Um, and we're just going to chat a little bit about it, give you a quick overview, talk about why it's great, and, you know, maybe where you can pick it up. So today we're going to be talking about Land Unter, or Turn the Tide, as it's known in America. This is a small card game for three to five players, and it primarily uses card bidding and simultaneous reveal uh, mechanics. And in this game, each player is going to have 12 cards in their hand, and the hand that they have is going to have a value. Basically, depending on the cards that you have, you're going to get a certain amount of tokens depending on how easy or how challenging this hand is to work with within the game. Um, in the middle of the table, there's going to be a deck of 24 cards, and this deck contains two copies each of cards valued 1 through 12. And to play this game, each round, two of those center cards are going to be flipped out. So two of those cards between 1 and 12 are going to be out on the table, and you're going to choose one of the, hand, one of the cards from your hand to basically bid on those cards in the middle. You can go high, you can go low, um, and depending on what you play, you may or may not take one of those cards. 
So once everyone reveals their card, the highest card played from someone's hand will take the lowest card from the center. The next highest card somebody has played from their hand will take the higher of the two center cards. And then what will happen is the round will end. Whoever has the highest card from the center in front of them, between 1 and 12, will actually lose one of those tokens, or one of their lives, essentially. And then you'll do this all again, over and over again, until all 12 cards are played from your hand. That signifies the end of the hand, and you will score points based on how many of your tokens you have left. So essentially, easier hands will have less tokens to work with, so you have to play them a little bit better, while more difficult hands will give you more opportunities um, because they're more challenging to play with. Let's go ahead and jump into why we why we like this game. This is a game that we've been playing a bunch. Um, I, I know all three of us have played this, and we can go ahead and talk a little bit about why we like it. So the biggest thing for me is I like just how quick and easy it is. Um, Dan taught us this game in no time flat. We picked it up really quick, um, and we played through the game in, I don't know, maybe 20 minutes, 25 minutes. Yeah, that's it's pretty much the perfect filler length slash weight of game the only thing i would say that holds it back is that rules explanation i don't know what dan says that's magical but i always have a hard time explaining it because it's like the the highest value takes the lowest card it's just hard for people sometimes to get that into their brain but once you've played a hand it's easy you think i think i think coming up with how to play your cards is much much more difficult than just explaining the basic concept of it. I just mean that people, as they listen to the rules explanation, don't pick up on exactly what's going on right away. Yeah, I think that, obviously we just you know, described it over the air, but I think that this game is best taught with it right in front of you, and maybe even doing some like demonstrating and things like that. Um, you know, really like hands-on learning in this game, you get a lot better once you start playing. And I know that the first time I played, I understood the game, but I was still working out the rules and everything and how to play as I played that first hand, and I did pretty poorly, but um, <laughs> it, it takes some experience, I'd say. Yeah, like Dan said, trying to figure out which card to play, that's a whole different... That that essentially is the game, yeah? Yeah, but it's also one thing that I like, because I, I liked the, the decision-making that's there. You know, for such a light game, it's really interesting to try to figure out which card to play. Um, it's got... Some of that trick-taking decision-making where, you know, you can, what to lead with, what whether to go high or low, whether you can risk, you know, taking one of the center cards because of its value. Um, I, I really liked all that. Yeah. My favorite part is that everyone plays with the same hand. Well, not the same hand. Everyone plays everyone else's hand once. So, like Matt said in the description, um, the rounds go equal to the number of players. So if there's four players, you play four rounds, and everyone plays each other's hands once, which is is cool because it kind of mitigates that, oh, I just got you know good cards. I mean, before we played Land Hunter yesterday, we played uh, Chimera, and I was just getting dealt crap left and right. And that was, it was starting to frustrate me a little bit, but that's how most you know trick-taking games and stuff like that are. You know, It's all about the deal. But this one, it's kind of... It's nice because you're you're playing each hand, and it, it almost becomes a game within the game to see who can play each hand the best and, and score off that. So I like that. Yeah, that's really interesting because it scales basically on the strength of your hand, and you get a chance to play those strong hands and those weak hands. So um, 
a hand with more tokens is technically a weaker hand because it probably has more of those middle cards. You know, it doesn't have super high values that let you take tricks easily, and it doesn't have super low values that let you avoid tricks easily. Um, it's got a lot of those in-betweens where you kind of get stuck um, with the bad end of the stick. But you can always know that, okay, I just have to play this to the best of my ability. And, you know, even though Dan's across the table from me getting all kinds of points, I'll get a, I'll get a chance to play that hand at some point. Um, so I, I, I like that as well. I think that's like a good source for trash talk during the game. Oh, yeah, I, you have that crappy hand? I, I got three points from that crappy hand. Like, that that's part of what makes it fun for me. Yeah, yeah we did that at Gen Con, I remember, with that one. There was one hand that I started with. It was like uh-huh. five, five preserves or six preservers. Um, and it was just like, I, I had the best score within, you know, the, the group with two. And it just became this, like, it was just a game within the game, like I mentioned before, where every time it passed, someone would be like, all right, I got to beat two now. And that yeah. was kind of funny. Yeah, you, you, you've got the cursed hand now. Let's see what you do with it. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. So... Land Hunter or Turn the Tide is a really fantastic little filler game. Um, if you want to pick it up, actually, you are a little bit out of luck because this game is currently out of print, but it is out there on the web. You can find it. Um, I think it was on Amazon. It's on some other board gaming websites. You can find it at Board Game Geek. Um, a couple of German sites. I know still have it. Um, a few Canadian ones. So basically any of your go-to import sites will, will have a copy um, or not many, but they, they should have one or yep. two copies. And it's a language-neutral game, so even if you buy an imported version, you can find the English rules online or wherever, or it might come with them. Um, so it's it doesn't re- involve any German reading, even if you buy the German re- version. Yeah. What you should realize as you're looking for this game online is that the English Turn the Tide version is different from the Land Unter German version. Turn the Tide comes with tokens for your life, and Land Unter has uh, just cards. So if you want to go, the tokens kind of make it nicer because you don't have cards laying all over the table. It's not all cards, but the cards are nicer because of portability reasons, I think. Yeah, so depending on your preference, you might want to look into one of those two different versions. But either way, same exact game. All right, so that's Turn the Tide. Check it out. All right, so that's Turn the Tide. Now we're going to switch gears and talk to Chris Kirkman from Dice Hate Me Games. He's joining us here for a quick interview. Hello, Chris. Hello. How you doing today? Oh, I'm just spiffy. Well, let's start off with you just briefly introducing yourself and giving us some background on your gaming history and your life in this hobby. <laughs> My life. Well, I was born in 1974. Wow. Long, long ago. Yes, I know. Yeah, thanks. Wow. Settle in, <laughs> listeners. It's a long one. You're, you're old. Um, <laughs> many moons. <laughs> many, many, many moons ago. Uh, well, as far as like being in the hobby... I've been playing games, well, most of us probably have, but I've been playing games since I was like probably three. Uh, the first game that I can really remember playing was Sammy the White House Mouse, and uh, I'm still looking for a copy of that game. Now, I know I can buy it online, and many people tell me this. They go, whenever you want a game, you can buy anything online. Yes, but that's not the point. 
You got to hunt it down. You got to find it and trap it in the wild. So <laughs> there's this thing called the internet. <laughs> uh, so one of these days, I will manage to track down Sammy the White House Mouse uh, in a in a uh, consignment shop or something, and and I'll complete my collection. Um, recently, did that with Bermuda Triangle, by the way, which was a really cool game. Yeah, I saw that at the marathon. It looked neat. Oh, it was super cool. Um, I won't go into full detail on it, but there's this little cloud that that roams around the board um, after every turn, after everybody's uh, made a move, and it can rotate and move depending on the compass heading. And there are these little fins underneath the cloud that have magnets, and so you have these ships, and you're trying to you know move your ships around the board and and uh, um, deliver goods. And if the cloud comes over your ship, it could suck it up into the cloud and it disappears forever. So it's really cool. <laughs> that sounds cool. It's, yeah, it's very thematic. I mean, it's a roll and move game, you know, essentially. So if it was updated with some modern mechanics, I think it could uh, actually be really, really awesome. But it's still fun for what it is. So do you have a whole shelf full of childhood games that you've been slowly collecting? Is that? I, <laughs> I do. Uh, every now and then I'll come across one that uh, I lost in a yard sale way back when. And But a lot of my um, childhood games, at least the ones from middle school and up, I still have. So uh, like, let's say, HeroQuest and Fireball Island and even my fir- very first Clue and Monopoly and, and my copy of Dungeon. Nice. <clears throat> Yeah, so I keep all those pretty safe. I lost a couple of those two years ago when I moved back because I had a. Uh, this is so. I should be damned, Patrice, right now. It's such a tangent, but um, <laughs> my my shed out back behind my house, uh, a squirrel gnawed a hole in the wall, and uh, so it let water in, and so the water got in and pulled, and I got a crazy strain of of mold in there. So. A couple of my board games <clears throat> kind of went to the sky and uh, got ate by mold. But I was able to save the rest of them. You should submit that to Board Gaming Tales of Horror. I know. It is. It's completely horrible. It's really terrible. All yeah, right. Well, what about your modern gaming? That squirrel. <laughs> <laughs> I have the kingdom of the squirrels here, by the way. I, mean, I live... But my, my, I live on a cul-de-sac, and, <clears throat> and the area that I live in is a bunch of old-growth trees. I mean, it's beautiful, but it's essentially like living in the woods and uh i can i'll wake up in the mornings and and hear squirrels on the roof playing basketball i mean it's just insane they're everywhere well i hear you're pretty good with a bow and arrow you could probably get a squirrel (laughs) i probably could uh, you know i I definitely could yeah i'm I'm not too bad with a bow and arrow i i did qualify for the olympics so that was cool um so modern modern board gaming (laughs) Back in, like on, skip over that whole Olympics thing and move on to more board games. <laughs> Jack of all trades here. How many different jobs have you had? Oh, a million. Yeah, <laughs> at least. Um, I don't even, you know, I think I'm on my fifth career now. I think this is my, you could call this my fifth. Um, <clears throat> but modern board gaming, yeah. Um, so but with my fifth career, I, I do own Dice Amy Games. And uh, that's pretty much my full-time gig. Um, is publishing and, and developing games uh, with with designers. Modern board gaming, I've been, I guess, back into the hobby full time. Let's see, probably since 2007. I mean, I, I'd always played board games throughout my life and, and RPGs and things. I'd always been really involved, but uh, it wasn't until I moved back to North Carolina that I was able to really get back into the hobby full time. I had lived in in DC, Washington DC, and in, in Boston, working for the Washington Post and Boston Globe, and you know, pretty much journalism was 
was my life in those in those days. And um, I would play board games from time to time, or uh, you know, video games and things like that. But not as much as I couldn't devote as much as, as of my time because journalism, you know, uh, pretty much ate up most of my hours. So when I got out of the newspaper industry and came back to, to North Carolina, I had a lot of extra time on my hands. So I started really getting involved with board game groups and um, digging into the hobby in general. And then, um, let's see, when was it? 2010, I believe, is when we launched Carnival on Kickstarter. And the rest is, uh, I guess they say, is history. So what made you decide to, to launch that game on Kickstarter? Did Sherilyn, it's Sherilyn's game. Mm-hmm. She designed that, and then you just looked up what it would take to put it out there and went for it? Well, you know, I'd always kind of had the dream that I, I would like to publish games, um, or at least have a job in the industry in some way. I mean, I have uh, uh, game designs of my own that I'd like to see you know, come out eventually, and then uh, anybody who knows me heard me talk about them ad infinitum. And, um, you know, they're, they're larger game ideas. They're games that have been on the shelf. And back in 1999, I actually co-owned a multimedia production company with a friend of mine, Chris Johnson. And um, we would develop games, and he would he would uh, code them for Shockwave, uh, multimedia Shockwave. And then Flash was in its infancy back then as well. So we uh, had a company that would make those games and put them online and, and try to re- generate revenue. We had a large game called Trinity that was going to be bought by uh, Gameloft in Canada. That was when Gameloft was still trying to develop things for online. Now they're primarily a mobile developer. Uh, they also do apps and things. But <clears throat> we had Trinity and was development, developing it for them. And uh, they were supposed to come down with a check and you know, give us seed funding so we could keep doing it and, and actually do it full time. So uh, Chris went to part time at, at his job at the newspaper, and I said, "Well, we don't have a check in our hand yet, so I'm not going to." And that was smart of me because uh, about two weeks after he had gone to part time, and about a week before they were supposed to come down and give us a check for seed funding, that's kind of when the internet bust happened. Oh. Yeah. So Gameloft had to declare bankruptcy and restructure. Um, we never got the check, and we had to kind of fold that part of the company. Now, uh, that wasn't to say that we didn't still tinker around with, with with the actual website and with the company itself, but it never became a revenue generator. Um, but during that, I was kind of the key developer for both games, and uh, games development, things like that. And so there were three or four game designs kind of on the shelf that I've been working and developing. I'd always try to develop them as an analog gaming experience, but we wanted to transport them into digital. And uh, as such, since they were designed as, as analog experiences first, um, they're very viable uh, to be board games later. So anyway, long story short, <clears throat> that kind of developed into me wanting to, if anything, publish games, but eventually hopefully publish one or two of my designs. So, Sherilyn, knowing that, um, for those out there listening, Sherilyn is my ex-wife, and she's the designer of Carnival. She she sat down and got an idea in her head and was like, well, I'll just design a game. And within a day, she had designed a game. It was amazing. And um, I realized it was pretty good, so we started developing it more and more. And um, with Kickstarter, uh, the, the, the idea and I guess the process of going to Kickstarter was that I had been on the Kickstarter beat with my kind of journalism blog, Dice Hate Me. Uh, for about a year. So back when, uh, back in the Wild West days, when David McKenzie and Clever Mojo Games launched Alien Frontiers on Kickstarter, I mean they raised fourteen thousand dollars. I mean back then that was huge. It was amazing. 
And uh, so I started interviewing David and getting to know him and, and getting to know some other people who were involved and then actually started covering the Kickstarter beat. Um, I think I was one of the first one of the first blogs out there and, and voices out there to actually start talking about Kickstarter. And then it became just huge. Um, but anyway, a year later, that was when uh, we developed Carnival, put Carnival on Kickstarter, and it did really, really well. So that's kind of the history and the, and the, the uh, genesis of uh, Dice Hate Me Games as a publishing company. Cool. So you did the art for that game. Um, when did you get started with graphic design and art? Well, um, I went to school uh, at UNC Chapel Hill, University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and um, I'd always wanted really to go into journalism. Uh, I went in and I declared a psychology major first, and then I took yeah, I took hey, my hey, first hey, psychology hey. class. <laughs> yeah, no. Well, I took my first psychology class, and then I realized that they were going to ruin me for life, so I decided that uh, I was going to change it. You know, back to journalism. Matt has a master's in psychology. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> it hurts. More, more power to you, buddy. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, my my best friend from childhood, I've known. Actually, we were in cribs beside each other. He he has a he has a PhD in psychology. Know, the so damage he's... is done, man. You can't dig your way out. Of this. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm Some of my best friends are psychologists. How's that? How's that? Um, You're a lucky man. That's right. Uh, I, I can always get free, free therapy whenever I need it. <laughs> um, so anyway, I, I, I really had always loved the idea of journalism and was always a very curious person, liked to write. And, and so I went into journalism and, uh, declared a photojournalism. We had, uh, at UNC, we have tracks and, you know, you can be on the, the news, uh, writing track or the editing track or PR marketing, um, and then visual communications track. And so, I thought visual communications would be good for me because I'd always been good with photography. I like photojournalism, and that's what I was kind of going down. Um, I tried to get into a photojournalism class my, I guess, my junior year. Yeah, my junior year, but I but I couldn't. And uh, as such, I ended up taking graphic design instead, and I just fell in love with it. And uh, that's pretty much where I just went. I still do photography. I still um, love photojournalism, and I still took the classes. But graphic design was something that I just kind of fell into that I was really good at. Um, I was never able to really draw well as, as, as a kid. Um, I always wanted to, I loved the visual communications and I found that the computer actually uh, gave me the tools that I needed to create the environments that I wanted to. And, um, so after graduating, I went to work, uh, a newspaper, uh, the sun Sentinel in, in Fort Lauderdale and then, uh, worked on their graphic design team and, that's kind of where it went. I, I worked for them. I, I was art director at the Washington Post. I was a senior designer at uh, the Boston Globe. And so uh, over those years, I just honed my skills and learned a lot of, uh, you know, tricks and tips and things. And so um, also had been really pretty good at packaging design and, and, and keeping my eye on, you know, uh, product design in general from doing both freelance gigs, but also working for the newspaper. And, and that just all translated really into kind of what I do now for Dice Hate Me. Now, are you, all of your graphic design now is towards Dice Hate Me games, or are you still doing some freelance stuff? Occasionally, I'll do some freelance stuff. I mean, I, I don't have as much time to do that as, as I would like. Um, you know, a lot of my stuff that I'd done, I guess, kind of freelance was also animation. I was um, an animator, a medical animator for a few years when I got out of journalism. And so I'd use those to help out like companies like Eagle and Griffin to do videos for Kickstarter 
and uh, done some web design and some game graphic design. I, I designed most recently, I guess, um, the cards and graphic design for uh, Eggs and Empires for for Eagle and Griffin for Matt and Ben Matt Riddle and Ben Pinchback's game. So occasionally I'll get that gig. I, I did graphic design duties on Sunrise City, um, a couple of game game salute titles here and there, things like that. So, but most mostly it's it's um, geared toward Dice Hate Me Games products. And I don't do all the graphic design for every game. Um, Daryl has done graphic design duties on his games for Compounded, and also helped out a co- in a couple of ways with doing uh, some art for the Blend Slates and Viva Java and the uh, the recipes in Brew Crafters. So for when we're talking about Dice Hate Me games, I think one of the things that makes Dice Hate Me games stand out on the shelf is the artwork and the graphic design. What kinds of things do you try to put in your games that really make them pop out as opposed to other games? Well, I think it's kind of <clears throat> it's really tied into my visual voice. Um, I always encourage I also teach as well. I'm a professor at UNC and I teach my students to try to find their comfort zone. You know what what. Everyone has a visual voice who who is an artist or or graphic designer, and my visual voice has always been sort of retro Americana. Um, I'm very good at you know, creating environments, like realistic environments. I'm good with Photoshop, um, and I also have a, a a passion for like you know mid mid century modern uh, furniture design and and the 1950s cultures. So. I kind of look toward a lot of that for my inspiration when I when I do my graphic design. So my visual voice is is definitely retro Americana, and so that is just different than most of the things you see on the shelf. Um, it, there's like I always joke about, but it's true. It's either there's going to be a spaceship or an alien on the front of the box, or some dour 16th century nobleman <laughs> staring back at you. And so between those types of box covers you know uh, designing something that looks realistic or has sort of like a uh more of a not necessarily commercial but retro americana commercial flair to it is going to be is going to stand out and so i think that's what's really been great about the games that that we've been able to put out for dice amy games is they all kind of have this cohesive uh, they, they they seem to live in the same universe, really. The only one that kind of is a little bit different is Bell of the Ball, but even Bell of the Ball, I think Jackie Davis was able to capture the flair of what we kind of go for in those games, and it still you know matches. So it's really kind of comes down to my aesthetic and how we decide to design. Even Daryl Daryl designed all everything for Compounded, but he still understood and gets. Um, you know, the dice hate me aesthetic. And so compounded fits in just perfectly with the rest of the games. Sure does. Um, especially with all that beautiful wood grain. <laughs> all the wood grain. Well, Daryl loves his wood grain, that's for sure. I think we all do. <laughs> Love Daryl's wood grain. Daryl, <laughs> about a nickel for every time. <laughs> so when you're looking for games to sign, you probably look for themes that fit that aesthetic. Typically I do, but um, I'm not always limited to that either. Uh, you know, if if someone was to design a game that I didn't think exactly fit into that aesthetic, we would talk about you know theme and 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 so forth. But I've been pretty lucky in that most of the games that I have really liked and love to play have really fit into that aesthetic. Um, New Bedford comes to mind, I guess, as far as like that's concerned, because again, it's a little bit a little bit older than. Yeah, thematically than, than some of the other games that I've done. But I do like 
the Americana aspect of most of our games. We, you know, we got coffee, we got beer brewing, uh, we got trucking across the Midwest. You know, and they're all set in specific time periods. And uh, you know, New Bedford is set in the 1850s, so it's a little older than than some of the other time periods that we've set the other games in. But but uh, it's just been really cool. I mean, I think a lot of people realize that that's kind of the the gist and the aesthetic of Dice Hate Me. And so whenever they're thinking about games to to pitch they bring those out and that's been i think important uh to try to, to match that because i can really tell and when i sit down and play a game i can tell whether a game's been developed for its mechanics or its theme and typically the games that i like to play uh integrate their mechanics based on the theme first and and that's important so i like that can you usually tell when you play a game if you're going to sign it right away or does it take a couple of plays on a couple of occasions well that's is it hard. a love and first sight kind of thing? <laughs> it kind of is. Um, yeah, I guess I'd have to look back on all the games that I've played. I can immediately know that, yeah, this is this is a Dice Hate Me Games game. You know, it was like that with Brewcrafters. After I finished playing Brewcrafters, I was like, yep, I need to sign this. Uh, Viva Java, uh, to this day, I mean, uh, halfway through Viva Java, I was like, this game has to be made. I was, it was, Dice Hate Me Games didn't even exist at the time with Viva Java when I played that. And I was just like, I, I hope Carnival does well because I want to do Viva Java. This has to happen. Um, I don't think there's really been any game that I can think of. I Well, I will say, okay, Bell the Ball. Um, I knew that Bell had potential. And Daniel Solis and I had talked about Bell, you know, like a year before I'd even considered signing it. And we kept talking back and forth. Um, the thing about Bell the Ball, though, with Daniel, Daniel has ideas, like an idea a minute. I mean, his brain is amazing but he, he gets he throws an idea out and if it sticks he kind of runs a little bit with it and he's on to something else and so with bell it was kind of a it was kind of a a process where he would develop an iteration of the game and then he'd play test it once and then he'd tweak it and it'd become a completely different game so by the time i'd looked at you know i'd played like probably 10 of the different iterations that he'd had and all of them seemed good but they just weren't quite there and so finally, I think it was like Iteration Q or something like that. I don't even remember what it was, which eventually became the Bell of the Ball that's in the library now. That was when I finally played it, and I was like, no, this is it. You just, okay, I want to sign this game in this iteration. This is the iteration we can develop this. And and so even between me saying that and signing him, he had made two other iterations that changed the game completely. And I was like, no, you're done. We're going back, and we're going to stick with that iteration that you had, and uh, we're going to develop that iteration a little bit further, make some small tweaks, which is what we did eventually, and that's what became Bell of the Ball. So there are instances like with Bell of the Ball where I I see the game, I, I know that I love it, I know it has potential, but it, it still needs some development. Every every single game that comes in you know, to Dice Hate Me Games is going to make – you're going to be some, some tweaking, some development to make them the best they can be. Um, but yeah, pretty much when I sit down and look at a game, I, I know that I, that I really want it or not. All right. So you you found Bell of the Ball at Unpub, right? Well, kind of. Kind of. Signed it at Unpub. I signed Bell. I you know no, I signed Bell previous to Unpub. Mm. Um, there are a lot of games that I do find at Unpub, however. But Bell of the Ball was one of those special instances. Daniel lives near me, and we game together, so. Sure. I had played iterations of Bell, and finally we'd gotten to that one iteration that he was getting ready to take to Unpub, and that was the one that I knew would be Bell the Ball. 
I guess what I'm getting at is you're hugely involved with the whole Unpub network. Yes. And I was just curious, what is it that you love about it? What do you enjoy about it? How do you use it? Um, Unpub is cool because it's a way for designers to put their games in front of other designers and gamers and get feedback. Um, it's a great system, great network for that. What I love about it, um, well, I mean, it's twofold. One, as a publisher, I love it because I'm able to go and see kind of like what the new talent is out there and what the what people are working on. And do it in a, in a situation, an environment where I know that they're they're there to game with their that that prototype. You know, that's what Unpub is all about, or at least the the main the yearly Unpub festival. Um, there are other Unpub minis. There's a presence at cons, and matter of fact, at BGG Con next week, Daryl and I will be there, and Daryl will be running the Unpub area, and I'll be hanging out there. We'll be you know demo and brew crafters in New New Bedford. And it's just a great environment because I know that anyone who is serious about what they're doing is going to be um, putting it in front of people at Unpub. And I know that it's a great environment there, too, because we have standardized questionnaires that helps people, uh, playtesters and other designers who play the game, to answer those anonymously. And they get put into a database, and the designers can see what's working and what's not working for a game. So... As a publisher, I know that anything that's been in the Unpub system for a little while has been in front of a lot of people and has been playtested well. So that's very important. It's it's a big load um, kind of off the designer and the publisher's back. As as a gamer, I love Unpub simply because I get to go and see all these cool ideas and see the hobby thriving. Um, there's It's a lot of behind the scenes that that very few people are, are privy to, and but they can be if they, they go to an Unpub or, or participate in an Unpub Mini. Um, and that's why I love Unpub. It, it's also it's just a great environment for a lot of like-minded people to get together and make games better. I agree with that. I'll be there this year. I think we're all going to be there. Is yeah, right? it's coming to our hometown, Baltimore. Baltimore, <laughs> Balmer, Balmer, huh? We do not talk like that. <laughs> <laughs> we don't. Yeah, right. Everyone else does. Well, yeah. That's <laughs> about to say. I used to live in D.C., so I know Balmer. Yeah, you win. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's get into a little bit of New Bedford. Ah, New Bedford. New Bedford? Yeah, New Bedford. All right. Let me try that. She's from Baltimore, too, apparently. (laughs) (laughs) New Bedford. Give me a break. All right, so let's get into a little New Bedford. You signed that last year at Unpub. I did. (laughs) See, I got one right. And that is now live on Kickstarter. Do you want to give us the quick elevator pitch of that game? Elevator pitch for New Bedford. Um, New Bedford is set in the mid-1800s in New Bedford, Massachusetts. New Bedford, a uh, little bit of history, is uh, was the whaling capital of the world in the 1850s. And essentially what you're doing in New Bedford is you're managing the town itself as it grows into this whaling community. And then you can also uh, go out, send your ships out whaling if you if you if you want to, I mean, there's uh, several different avenues for victory in the game, but uh, whaling the whaling mechanic is a big part of it. Um, basically, when you do that, you send a ship out. You you can send it out further to sea, or depending on how much food that you load up on your ship when you send it out is how far it will go out. The further out that you are, um, each round there are, you you draw tiles depending on the number of ships that are at sea. And um, the further out you are, the the better choice that you get. You get to choose before someone who is closer to shore. 
And so you kind of have to, you know, judge and, and, and manage those those uh, position, jockeying for position to get the, the whales. And there are three different types of whales uh, in the game itself that can be whaled. They're right whales, bowheads, and sperm whales. Um, those are in the order of rarity. Sperm whales being, of course, the most valuable and, and the whale that everyone was always looking for in that time, but also one of the hardest to catch because um, they, they fought back. Um, you know, they were... They were wily. Uh, Moby Dick, for just throw that out for anyone, Moby Dick was an albino sperm whale. So um, what happens in the game, too, is you can also draw open seas. And when there's open seas and you hit the last pick, then you're just you're out. You don't you didn't collect any whales. You won't get any victory points. Now, the 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 benefit of catching whales is they're worth a lot of victory points. The the detriment is that you actually have to pay the lay on them. And a lay is when you go into the docks, you're paying basically um, dock workers and, and so on and so forth, the processing fees that would occur when you brought whales in, processing the whale oil, helping offload the whales and things like that. So the bigger the whale, like for instance, sperm whale, it costs a lot to process, whereas but it also it gives you more um, victory points. Um, now, the, the, the thing that we try to reflect or talk about with New Bedford is that obviously some people are going to think, are going to feel like the, the theme's controversial. Uh, it is a touchy subject because whaling, of course, still goes on in modern in the modern world, but people are much more aware of uh, ecology, uh, yeah, ecology and, and conservation and things like that. What we want to do with New Bedford is uh, raise awareness of mm-hmm. the history of whaling, but also talk a bit about the econ- uh, ecological impacts that happen. For instance, when you play the game, the mechanics of whaling, you're uh, drawing tiles from the bag, and the more ships that are out whaling, the more chances are there are going to be um, open uh, open sea tiles in there, which reflects, uh, you know, the population dwindling and the, e- the ecological impact of, of whaling. So we're going to talk a bit about that in the rule book and make people aware of that. Yeah, I thought that that mechanic was nice. It's a, you know, obviously you'll talk about it explicitly in the rule book, but it, it gives that it's a subtle reminder, you know, of kind of what you're doing um, and the impact that it's having. So. I know that, you know, this issue is apparently seeming controversial, but I did, you know, I appreciate how you guys are addressing it. Well, I appreciate that, too. And I think that a lot of people who take the time to actually investigate the game see that as well. And that's that's really why, I mean, you know, Nat and I, the, the designer Nat Levan, um, talked extensively about the theme and about whaling. And um, he worked really, really tirelessly to make sure that this game was as realistic as possible. And it shows. It's... Um, it's just so intuitive and really refle- reflects the the essence of the time uh, of New Bedford when this was this was happening, and even all the way down to that mechanic of dwindling whale populations. I think it's it's really strong. Yeah. Well, where do you kind of see? We talked a little bit earlier about you know even from a from a um, graphic design standpoint, but also from like a game. Uh, mechanic design you know where do you see this fitting into your line um well it's a it's kind of interesting because starting with brew crafters it was a chance for us to really uh introduce some euro um mechanisms into the american market and um i mean there have been some other games that have done it you know um taste of minstrels done belfort and uh, home homesteaders um and, you know, Clever Mojo a little bit with Alien Frontiers, but even that was a different amalgam. Um, you know, with with Brewcrafters, I feel it really started, you know, that that heavy Euro feel in an American package. 
even the front of the box says Euro. I don't remember what the, our tagline is for it, but <laughs> uh, anyway, it's it's a Euro with with American tweakings on it, and that's what I kind of like is that we're taking these European mechanics that have been typically German or European uh, appeal. And we're placing them into an American context. And New Bedford, to me, at least to me, is like the first, you know, American Euro. Yeah. Um, because it's 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 taking the the essence of what a Euro is, which is uh, traditionally a historical context for a city, and uh, your mechanics and theme are all based around that. And New Bedford is exactly that. So um, it really fits into Dice Hate Me Games Americana. You know, we, we, we love Americana. We want to celebrate Americana. And now we've got a chance to do that specifically with New Bedford with a specific time period in one of the, the most pivotal parts of American history. And um, that's really what how I think it fits into the line well and it opens this up for other games in that similar vein. Yeah, it really does. get It gives that feel. And it was I came to the realization, like as you were talking about, kind of your overall theme for the catalog of, of Dice Hate Me. Um it just New Bedford seems to fit so well. It really just is. It gives that American Euro feel. I like that descriptor. I like that a lot. Yeah, I, we, we. It just. It kind of. You know. It's one of those things that kind of fell into place as the the catalog was growing, um, because it, it not only does it harken back and fit my my uh, visual aesthetic appeal, but also it just it embraces what I feel like Dice Hate Me Games is for, and it's to bring that sort of Americana feel to the table. Yeah. Do you know if Nat developed the game thinking Dice Hate Me in mind, or was it just a happy coincidence that this fit so perfectly? I, I think that in the beginning, of course, he started designing the game simply because he was inspired by an idea, but the more he developed, um, we talked, you know, he was, he had, he had me in mind, um, basically when he was starting to develop it, I, um, of, which I think is great. I mean, it's, it's humbling for people to think about, you know, they have a game and they, they know what publisher they want to go with. And in this case, Nat was pretty sure that he wanted Dice Hate Me Games to publish New Bedford. And so the, the you know, the, the, the gears of the mechanism and everything just kind of worked. Um, you know, Daryl played it and then Daryl put it in front of me at BGGCon last year. And I was like, yeah, this, this game is great. And it all just kind of fits together. We love it. I love it. I can say that. I played it at, <laughs> I can play, I'll, I'll just speak for everyone in saying that it is fantastic. But um, <laughs> I played it at Origins and really like the feel of it. Just kind of that, it's that perfect weight, sort of Euro, you know, you're only playing an hour, maybe a little bit over an hour. So I'd highly recommend that people go pick it up. And they can do that for how much, Chris? 40 bucks if you live in America. Um, <laughs> Americana at its finest. Americana at its finest. That's right. You pay forty bucks, and that's um, the probably the retail is going to be the same as Compounded, which is thirty five dollars. You can get it for forty dollars on Kickstarter. We're giving a discount on um, shipping from that, but you're also helping us to make the game. And um, there will be once we get our get past our initial funding goal, which is thirty thousand dollars. We're about halfway there right now. Um, we'll be able to introduce some stretch goals, and there's going to be a couple that will be Kickstarter um, promos. In other words, those will be ones that um, backers will get that people outside of Kickstarter will not get for at least six months after the game is released. Um, we have a couple of those. One, one is an expansion of building tiles, and one, I'll tease, is actual micro game that Nat has uh, designed around New Bedford called Nantucket, which is really cool. 
so yeah, forty bucks for Americans. Uh, Canadians could get it for fifty, and worldwide, outside of U.S. and Canada, get it for sixty. Awesome. Well, I have I have one last question for you. Sure. So, <laughs> I hope so. Uh, <laughs> so uh, New Bedford is the rooster line. You have your whole line of games in uh, by animals in the Chinese zodiac. So there's the rabbit is the smallest, and the dragon that is the largest. But we haven't seen a dragon yet. We have not seen a dragon yet. Yeah. Is there one coming? Well, yes, hopefully. Um, the two of my games that I've, I've had in development for a few years now uh, are dragons, basically. They're, they're, they're big. Um, I haven't yet signed uh, someone outside of myself to do a dragon, but that's not to say that that might not happen. Um, we'll see. I mean, Unpub 5 is coming up, so <laughs> we there may be a dragon waiting there. All right, keep us posted on that. That's right. Right now, we in the pipeline, we have another monkey in January, or late January, which will be Don't Get Eated by TC Pay the Third. Um, and then in the spring, we'll do uh, another monkey, which is Bottom of the Ninth from Daryl Louder and Mike Mullins, and uh, Monster Truck Mayhem, which is uh, ben, Pinch, ben Pinchback and Matt Riddle's game about monster truck racing, and that will be a rooster. Yay, I'm excited about that it's one, too. That one's simple games. <laughs> <laughs> it's so gonna good. be a lot of fun. Yeah. Bottom of the ninth, size wise, seems like more of a like a mouse or something. It is. It really is. We we try to decide like what size we'd like to try to do it as. And it just kinda makes sense to put it in a monkey box, even though it's probably a rabbit. Yeah. Um but the monkey box size will be cool because we can actually make it look like a cracker jack box. Yes. Excellent. Yeah, that's a good idea. I really like that yeah. game. I can't wait for that one. It's it's really cool. It's it's a great two player you know, quick playing experience. It, it, it embodies the essence of, of baseball in, in a very tiny package. And it's actually going to start, it's going to allow us to kickstart, uh, huh, literally, um, our sort of sports line. We, we, you know, I love football, so we have a football game in development, and that'll, uh, we may eventually move into basketball and all kinds of other stuff. But it should be a lot of fun. So you guys are going to be taking on the next NHL deck builder? <laughs> That'll be Dan Patrice's job. <laughs> I'm surprised he doesn't have a million hockey games in mind already. I exactly. I have no idea why he hasn't developed those yet. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks so much for telling us a little bit about what you do and what you've got going on. We're going to move on to a lightning round. Lightning round. Okay. All right. Are you <clears throat> let me let me get ready. Let me let me stretch. Let me stretch. Okay. All right. I think I'm ready. Okay. <laughs> All right, so quick answers. Don't take too long here. Oh, boy. Okay. All right. Favorite designer, not yourself? <laughs> T.C. Petty the third. Favorite publisher, not yourself? Uh, oh, uh, Clever Mojo Games. Favorite game, not your own? Favorite game, not my own? Not a Dice Hate Me game. Not a Dice Hate Me game? Uh, Arkham Horror. Malcolm Reynolds or Han Solo? <laughs> Han Solo. Favorite component in any game? Oh my gosh, I can't do a lightning round on that. I gotta come think on that. Come on, favorite favorite mechanic in any game. Favorite component. Oh, component. Oh, uh, the uh, Tiki Idol on the top of um, Fireball Island. Ooh, Ninja nice. Turtles or Transformers? <laughs> oh, just... Thank you. Ninja Turtles or Transformers? Uh, um, yeah, tr- Ninja Turtles. Okay, I'll go with the classic here: Star Wars or Star Trek. <sighs> uh, I'm going uh, Lonius. <laughs> Fair enough. Good answer. 
David Tennant or Matt Smith? Oh, Matt Smith. Time to go home. Oh, I love <laughs> in your face, Matt. Not Matt Smith. Okay. All right. Twins or kindergarten cop? <laughs> uh, um, twins. Boom! You nailed it. All right. Aliens <laughs> or predators? Time. Jingle all the way. <laughs> Jingle all the way. Yeah, exactly. Aliens or predators? Aliens. All right. Good. <laughs> That's the lightning round. That's the lightning round. We're done? Oh, man. There should be more. We could do more. Those are hard, though. Seriously. Like, what? Super sad. Come on. <laughs> Soup every day. Kate or Ashley? <laughs> Neither. Uh, Elizabeth. <laughs> These are now, all the right Elizabeth now. Olsen is hot, so, and she's answer. also very smart. Right. Is that- and now there's going to be a furiously Googling bunch of you right now, right? Looking up Elizabeth. <laughs> All right. She's gonna be. Uh, she's gonna be um, Scarlet Witch in the Avengers. Yeah. What's the Avengers? Yeah, oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. X Men or Avengers, Chris? Oh, X Men. Movies. Oh, movie wise, Avengers. Yeah. Oh, totally. But if we're talking like historically, like the comics, X Men all I'll the way. Yeah. Are we gonna do a twenty minute aside on Marvel sorry, versus? Sorry. 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 <laughs> Marvel no. versus DC. We can totally get into Marvel versus DC if you want to, because Marvel, I'm a Marvel done. zombie. Moving on. Yeah. No, boom. Excellent. <laughs> All right. So <laughs> we'll finish up with our classic keep, trade, or burn. So this is, we're going to give you three games one you get to keep, one you give to someone else, and one you burn. Okay. Okay. All right. So Arkham Horror, Twilight Imperium 3. And Hero Quest. Oh my God! What? <laughs> that's that's evil. I know. Well, I mean, I, obviously, I keep Hero Quest um, because it's Hero Quest. I mean, let's get real. Um, that's as real will, as it comes. That's as real that's as, as it comes. That's as real as it comes. That's right. I will trade Arkham Horror, I guess, and I will let someone else burn Ti Three because I could not do it myself. <laughs> you can bring yourself to do it. It would burn for a while. I think. Oh yeah, so you could you could light your whole entire house with Ti three for about a month with it. <laughs> but no, yeah, that's that's horrible. That's horrific to even think of. <laughs> You'll have nightmares then I, tonight. Then I did well. <laughs> yes. Well, I think that's all we have for you. Is there anything you want to plug real quick, or anything you want to tease or talk about? I think you covered a lot of it. Yeah, I think we 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 pretty much got to the the bottom of all of it if if um also if anybody out there is coming to unpub and has a prototype design and wants to get it in the unpub area come over and talk to us i think that i I can't speak because daryl's handling all that but there may be some open tables that have not been signed yet so if you'd like to come out and get some playtesting and feedback on things in the unpub area uh come on over and talk to us and if they're interested in new bedford how long do they have the back uh the campaign ends on december 14th at 11.59 p.m., that is our traditional, we always launch on a Friday morning and we always end on a Sunday night. So okay. um, you got time, but come on out. Help to push us over that funny goal because we have some really cool stuff in mind for stretch goals. All right. Cool. Well, thanks, Chris. Yeah, well, thanks for having me on, guys. Some time, Chris. I know you've been busy, so we'll see you at Unpub, definitely. Yeah, all right. We'll see you then. Before we go, a brief reminder that you can always reach out to us on social media via Twitter at League Nonsense or on Facebook. 
aleagueofnonsensicalgamers.com. Shoot us an email at podcast at nonsensicalgamers.com. And head on over to the BGG Guild, guild number 2077. Start up a conversation with us. We'd love to hear what you have to say. Uh-huh.